Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Uh, I wanted to, I, I, we're approaching now or the end of our time ago, just going to give you a heads up what's coming. This is the 15th uh, lesson that I've taught this spring. Jeff's message last week makes 16 lessons, so you're going to get 17 by the time we get done next week. And then June 4th, I believe uh, Russ Rice starts taking over, I think for the larger class, but it could be individualized classes. I'm not quite sure, certain on that. I'm just, it's one large class? Okay, good. Yeah. So that'll be, uh, that'll be something to look forward to. I think he's teaching on Jude, if I remember right. So several weeks out of the book of Jude will be quite interesting. Uh, let me thank Jeff also for last week. That was a, a remarkable lesson, a very vulnerable lesson. Uh, a wonderful testimony of uh, parenting, but also uh, reliance upon Christ in the parenting process. Geneva, you deserve thanks too. Uh, both of you deserve a lot of thanks for your willingness to share that. There's a lot to be learned, and frankly, I hope like I was, you guys were also very moved by their story. Uh, but what I wanted you to walk away from, and what I had hoped to come from his lesson on this, is an appreciation for doing what God calls us to do because God calls us to do it. Right? We're not guaranteed any outcome in parenting. We, we can't see into the future of what our parenting will result in. Uh, we can't fully control the outcome of our parenting, and we don't often know what that outcome will be until the outcome arrives. But we know that, with, as with every aspect of our life, the truth of God's Word is supposed to guide our parenting. It has real implications for us as parents, and predominantly that means we remain faithful to what Scripture is concerned about with and for our children, which is, as we've said so many times in this class, it's their hearts. That's what we're after. It's not the modifying of their behavior. It's finding a way into their hearts with the truth of God's scripture. So I want us to continue to join Jeff and Geneva in prayer that the, the word that they sowed faithfully for those many years in the hearts of their children will, in both of their kids, yield much fruit. Uh, they've tilled that soil faithfully, and I hope that you'll pray with us that that will take root and grow and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in their kids, uh, both of them. And we've seen that more in some than others, but pray for, pray for Jeff and Geneva. Uh, and again, my thanks to you guys for putting up through that and, and, and giving us that message. All right, let's turn to the topic at hand for this week. Uh, this week we want to study, uh, and I've been excited about this lesson actually for, for months now. I hinted at it several weeks ago. Uh, the, the concept that we're going to talk about today is family worship. Family worship is our, is our topic for discussion this morning. Um, it should come as little surprise to you that uh, much of, if any success I've had in parenting, if any of that success has occurred at all, that's because, and it's heavily owed to, the parents who raised me, and then also the wife that God gave me. And I'll tell you exactly how that plays out in the life of this lesson. Um, there are, as a young man, my, my parents, and I would recall, would insist upon uh, family devotions, and they placed that right immediately after dinner every night. Especially as a young kid, it seemed a, a lengthy time that I was forced to sit at the dinner table after my food had been dutifully eaten, and I was still uh, required to sit there, the youngest of three siblings, my two sisters being significantly older than I was, four and eight years respectively. Um, I, I didn't mean that to be sound as much of an insult as maybe that came out as my sisters being older and they would say wiser, of course. But, you know, I was the youngest one at the dinner table, engaged around with a lot of what I felt was like adult conversation. And then I had to stick around even longer to have this 
devotion time. They didn't really call it family worship, but that's what it was. It was, uh, I would remember as a kid, we would, my dad had a Bible story book that he would read from, and I would uh, color a picture of the story itself. In fact, I remember I must have received some sort of compliment when I, I, from my older sisters, probably you know, doing a little bit of there, there kind of thing for me. But I drew a picture of Joseph and his coat of many colors. That became kind of my thing, right? Like I was known in my family for my illustration of Joseph and the coat of many colors. Uh, and as we grew, that devotion took on various forms over its time. As a teenager, you know, we, sometimes we would read from, you guys remember that devotional of the daily bread or a daily bread or some of those things. Um, not often was it like very formalized. It was just simply pull out a devotion and read it. But I think uh, my parents understood well the importance of this. We would, as a teen, also shift from uh, the dinner table. This is now when my sisters had mostly moved out of the house. And we would go to the family room and plug in a, yes, a VHS tape of uh, R.C. Sproul. And uh, I think I probably watched the entire catalog of R.C. Sproul from back when he was a young man to when he became an old man. Those were very formative and helpful in my years as a teenager a teenager too. But to be honest, my interest in family worship at those times was pretty limited. When I was an active kid, I lived in Florida. I wanted to be outside while the sun was still shining, either shooting baskets or throwing the football or playing kickball with the neighbor kid, or as I grew up later, to get to the Braves game quick enough to be able to watch that before you know the second inning came along. Uh, but my parents would force us to stay at the table, and it's good that they did. Uh, and so that was sort of the cycle that uh, occurred. We would have dinner, and then we would do the devotions, and then whatever life of the family and, and uh, homework and all the rest would occur after that. And that's how it happened until I left home. And at college, I didn't have anyone reminding me to do family devotions. I was kind of stuck on doing that myself. And certainly in, in godless law school, no one knew what that meant at all, nor did I make time for it in our very young marriage at the time either. So two or three years out of law school, Jenny and I are now in Charleston, West Virginia, we were attending for, in what that state would be, a, a mega church at that time. Uh, and uh, we had chosen that church probably for the, the wrong reasons, or I should say I chose that church perhaps for the wrong reasons, uh, hoping for more political connections than uh, spiritual guidance within that body. There, there's reasons for that. They weren't good reasons, but they were reasons anyway. But that church providentially brought in a guy by the name of Vody Bauckham to speak. Now, you got to appreciate the story. To appreciate the story better, you got to understand this church and Vody Bauckham would not actually mesh. They, 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 they kind of got him because he was the, the soup du jour. He was the issue of the day. And they brought him in. And I remember between the two services, I remember this because I was standing with the pastor when he did this to Vody. They'd asked me to, to pray that morning at the service. And they asked him to tone down his message between services. That didn't sit very well with Vody. <laughs> Nonetheless, if you don't know anything about Vody Bach, I mean, there are things to love about him. There are things to be eh, about with, with Vody. Generally, I'm on the love side, but not fully there. Uh, but you should know and should appreciate very much for the fact that he has a deep commitment to the concept of the family. Uh, and, and especially within the family uh, to dads discipling their children. Uh, and that at that time, that message to me was extremely convicting. And necessarily so. Uh, we had become Sunday, Wednesday Christians. Uh, we were good people. We were active in our church. We were very active in the church, as a matter of fact. But truly, as a family, we were probably more passively committed to discipling our children. Right? We were taking them to church. We were making sure they were getting the, uh, the things at church that they had to offer. But in terms of discipling, it was really more of a passive event. The church is supposed to do that, not so much us. That's where Vody really started speaking hard into my heart. So we began to make a few changes, and that included becoming much more committed. We actually changed churches. 
around that same time. Uh, and along with that, about that same time, we became much more committed to the, the idea and the concept of family worship, something that I now think on the other side of this, 15 years later, I, I think it's so central to biblical parenting and equally neglected by parents today in the church. Uh, and so it's, it's a critical thing, I think, that we, we miss today in some de-emphasis of family worship. And today, I want to show you how the biblical evidence, uh, what that says for family worship, and then I want to provide you lessons from church history on family worship, and then six motivations for family worship, and then offer a few practical guides and resources for family worship. All of that to do in the next, like, half an hour. So we got to get moving and got to get working through this. So put your quick listening ears on, because Jeremy's already fast speech is going to uptick. I promise you that today. But let's get into this right away. Let's start with the Bible. And you don't have to turn to these passages with me. You can just hear them with me. I'll read them as quickly and as clearly as I can. Uh, but starting in the Bible, as Fraulein Maria reminds us, is a very good place to start, right? So we're going to start right there. You like that call out, Karen? That was a pretty good one, right? A good place to start would be in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, look, I start there in Romans 12 because I want you to understand that our commitment to family worship is something that is holistic. It is something of the whole. It's merely, family worship is, is merely a part of life. And it ought to be just part of life. It is and should be a natural outworking of our non-conformance to this world, a routine part of what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. It should be very natural. Uh, you will find any number of excellent resources on the importance of the private study of the scriptures in your own life, finding time for your quiet time, praying for your in your prayer closet, and all these things. These are all great things, and they're all excellent necessary parts of the individual Christian life, but likewise there are dozens of resources I would heartily endorse that demonstrate the importance of corporate worship as a church body, identifying with a local body of believers, being present among the body of believers in Jesus Christ is essential to the Christian faith and necessary to aid our individual sanctification as well, but neither of those mean to leave our life together in the home alone. Right? Biblical parenting is much more than what form of discipline or not that we use, whether it's behavior modification or something else. It's so much more than all those things. At the very center of biblical parenting is the evangelization and the discipleship of our children, teaching them what has been revealed to us as parents. And that, that goes back to where we started this class in Deuteronomy 6, right? These are the things that it said, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Our duty is to, as parents is to teach diligently the things that God has commanded his people. But we know that by now, uh, we know that by now, and I'm not going to belabor that point. Let me show you instead that the people of God took this duty very seriously all the way back from 
from, well, actually, we can go all the way back to Abraham. Back when Abraham, you'll remember, was entertaining these, these sort of uh, dusty guests that happened to show up at the front of his tent. His wife was in the back laughing about the concept of bearing children in her old age. But God is out front revealing to Abraham part of his calling, and specifically his calling in relationship to his role as a dad. And this is what we read in Genesis 18. He says, The Lord said, and this is capitalized, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, listen to these words, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. He, the Lord, Yahweh, was t- saying to him that uh, he was to command his children and to, to teach them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, right? He's going to be the progenitor of an entire people group, chosen and set apart, called by God. But he was also to be, at the very root of that, at the very outset of that, primarily going to be a father committed to training his children. Why? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And we see evidence, in fact, that he did so. Where do we see that? Well, in Genesis 22, you remember the story. Uh, Here's the promised son of of Sarah's advanced age, Isaac. He's joining his dad up on a mountain. They've gone out to worship. There's a specific purpose for their trip to go up the mountain to worship. And Isaac knows he's got the fuel and the fire, but asks his father, father why that other element of key worship and sacrifice was not present. Why was there no lamb? You see, Isaac knew the elements of worship. He knew that a lamb was necessary to the process, that a sacrifice was incomplete with just fuel and fire. He had learned from his father how to worship the living God. Joshua follows Moses um, to lead the people of Israel into the promised land as well. As he passes from the scene, he declares in Joshua 24, 15, you guys remember this verse well, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. And then Joshua says this, he declares this before the entire assembly of Israel, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is in this a resolve on the part of Joshua not to be content to merely be a part of the nation of Israel, nor simply a passive recipient of the blessings of Yahweh for having been born in that tribe. Rather, his commitment was, in the face of all the little g-gods that were out there at the time that could be worshipped, that his house, his immediate family, those under his tent, would serve Yahweh. And undoubtedly that meant at least a little bit, that it meant worship as a family. Job also, he provides us a really unique insight into family worship. You don't get five verses into the book of Job before you start realizing that there was some serious family worship going on in there. We learned that Job would regularly uh, send for his children to come back to his tent uh, and this was usually after the big feasts that they would throw, right? They would, he would send for them to come back. He would lead them in the worship of God and offer sacrifices for them, interceding in front of them on their behalf. That, that's a lovely example of worship together as a family. The psalmist, uh, perhaps best known after David, Asaph, right? Uh, he teaches us about family worship. Listen to this from Psalm 78. 
Here's what Asaph says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should know, set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and so on and so forth. But you get the point that over and over and over again, Asaph is saying, take the things of God and transmit them to your children. He's not saying, take the things of God that you learned at the tabernacle and make sure that they go over to the temple when it shows up and have them teach the things of God. He will say that later on. That's important to go worship in the house of the Lord. But he's saying primarily to you, to dads especially, you tell them to your children. Some of the emphasis on fathers teaching the next generation the things of God would have occurred in that tabernacle of Israel clearly, but the grand majority of that teaching would have been done in the house. And like Joshua, as they rose, as they went to sleep, as they got up in the morning, they walked around the house, wherever they were, they were going to be instructing that, those people. They are going to be teaching diligently their children that which God had commanded them. We can fast forward all the way up to Paul. He also hints at the importance of the daily presence of worship in the home in Ephesians 5, he, where he's exhorting husbands uh, to follow the example of Christ. Christ is, is, is washing, he's cleansing his church with the, 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 uh, the, the sanctifying effect of the word. Well, Paul says to husbands in like manner, you ought to then refresh the home with the pure water of the word. Use that also to, to create in your home this purity that comes from the word of God. And that's all the more true. That's just the, the husband and wife relationship in chapter 5. But in Ephesians 6... Paul's next admonition, and we've looked at this already in this class, is that fathers might bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul sees it as very important that dads especially, and moms, but dads especially, are to be given this responsibility, to be uh, engaged in the process of instruction of the fear of the Lord. It's not a directive that we're allowed to somehow pass off to somebody else to do. This, dads, has been given to you as the responsibility. Moms, you share in this as well. But Scripture really unmistakably places this responsibility on the shoulders of dads to lead with the mother of their children, their wives, the, the worship, the teaching of their children. You do this together, but dads, you bear that responsibility. Right? Yeah, we, we provide for some of this by ensuring that they receive the benefits of corporate worship. We are to be together in this house, just as Abraham and Joshua and Asaph and many, many others did. But there is a necessary command of intentionality for fathers here to personally instruct their children in the things of the Lord, and I don't think we should miss that. The testimony of Scripture demonstrates that Christians generally are to be engaged in corporate worship. We are a people of God. We're not just a person of God. We are a people of God. We gather together in corporate worship. We serve the body together. We serve one another. As the New Testament reminds us, we outdo one another in well-doing. We try to. We're supposed to be competitive Christians with each other. Come on, compete with me. I want to do that. That's exciting for me. Do better than me so that I can do better than you in well-doing. This is what Paul is calling us to do to, with one another. Yes, that's all true, but the commitment is transmitted. That commitment to, to well-doing is transmitted to every successive generation intentionally 
through the family in our times of individual family worship. And that's a clear example of church history as well. Tertullian, that early church historian writing in the early three digits AD of the history of the Christian faith, he observed of the early Christian family this. He says, they pray together, they worship together, they fast together, instructing one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Psalms and hymns they sing to one another, striving to see which one of them will chant more beautifully the praises of their Lord, hearing and seeing this, Christ rejoices. This is Tertullian in the early digits of the Christian faith, saying this is, the, this is what marked the people of God. They were in their homes praying together, worshiping together, fasting together, and, and seeing how more beautifully they can sing the praises of God with one another. And what is, he, is the end result of that? Hearing and seeing this, Christ rejoices. According to a later historian, John Chrysostom, the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, which was once Istanbul and is now Constantinople, no, sorry, <laughs> Uh, he is said to have, quote, urged that every house should be a church and every head of a family a spiritual shepherd, remembering the account they must give even for his children, or he must give even for his children. Martin Luther, that great reformer of the church, was as committed to family worship as he was to so many other things, especially in his writings, his daily preaching, his teaching that he did. I mean, you know this guy was busy between writing the books that he's written, uh, preaching and teaching the things in places where he pre preached and taught, but also translating the entire Bible into the German language. This guy was busy, right? I, I don't think any of us probably were as busy as Martin Luther was, right? He was the, the center of this Reformation process. Well, he said, Abraham, who had in his tent a house of God and a church, just as today any godly and pious head of a household instructs his children in godliness, there, in godliness, therefore such a house is actually a school and church, and the head of the household is a bishop and priest in his house. Luther considered it pretty important for us to engage in family worship and to be leading that as dads. John Knox, uh, Bloody Mary once said, I love this quote of Bloody Mary, as she is said to have said, uh, she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Boy, wouldn't you love that to be said about your prayers. Oh, he wrote to the brethren back in Scotland in 1556. Now just think about how long ago that was. This is the midpoint really between the uh, Tertullian and where we're at today perhaps. But in 1556, he writes to the people in Scotland, the, the church there in Scotland that he had left. He says this, Brethren, ye are ordained of God to rule your own houses in his true fear and according to his word. And therefore I say, ye must make them partakers in reading, exhorting, and in making common prayers, which I would do which I would in every house were used once a day at least. John Knox, the guy that his prayers shook the knees of Bloody Mary, he says you ought to be engaged in family worship once a day at least. The Puritans are, are very committed to the concept of family worship, and you need only go as far away as Plymouth Plantation and where they will still reenact this for you if you want to see it. Uh, Richard Baxter, who lived in the middle of the part of the 1600s and was a Puritan minister, he said this, Solemn prayer and praises of God in and by Christian families is of divine appointment. Family prayer and praises are a duty owed by the teaching and sanctifying work, work of, the Spirit, of the Spirit. Therefore, they are of God. They want us to be engaged in, as a Christian family in the prayer and praises as an act of, uh, of a Christian family to God. Matthew Henry, another Puritan, uh, the great commentator of the Bible, 
Uh, he wrote a lovely message on turning families into little churches. I'll reference that uh, much more uh, deeply in a moment here. But his biographer wrote of him something I think is incredibly flattering. He says this, Matthew was constant in the worship of God and his family, morning and evening, which nothing was suffered to prevent. He, w- he was dedicated to this. He would, he would not let anything else get in the way of that. Here's this little tender insight his biographer gives and the glimpse of the intimacy of this father-led family worship. He says this, When the whole was ended, after they got done with the family worship, his children came to him for his blessing, which he gave with solemnity and affection. What a beautiful thing to consider. I don't know how many kids uh, Henry must have had, but I, I get the sense of kind of lining up oldest to youngest, and they would come, and one by one he put his hand upon them and pronounced a blessing of God upon his children. What a delightful thing as a dad to consider that, right? That you would, you would hold your little baby or, or have to reach up to your oldest son, put your hand upon their head and look up to them and pronounce a blessing of the Almighty God upon their lives. And what a, what a delightful thing as the child themselves, feeling that weight of the father's hand upon their head as a young child, as an older child, having witnessed this dad age over the years, and year upon year, day upon day, receive this divine blessing upon their lives. I choke up almost every time I reference this, but my, dad, my grandfather, who's now 101 and a half or more at this point, has at many points in his history pronounced a blessing upon me and my, my siblings. His great-grandmother prayed, great-great-grandmother prayed for uh, faithfulness in her grandchildren to the sixth generation, which is my generation, right? I feel that blessing of a grandfather upon my life. And we, as fathers, guys, we have the opportunity to pronounce that blessing upon our children as well. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. Jonathan Edwards also rose before his children to pray for them. And then when they woke up, he would pray with them. And then he would follow that by a time of age-appropriate quizzing, uh, quizzing his children over the meaning of the scriptures. He would, he would, he would catechize them. Samuel Davies, who succeeded Jonathan Edwards as president of Princeton in the uh, 17 and 1800s, uh, he says, if you love your children, this is is his quote, if you love your children, if you would bring down the blessing of heaven upon your families, that's a great line, if you would bring down the blessing of heaven upon your families, if you would have your children make their houses the receptacles of religion when they set up life for themselves, if you would have religion survive in this place and be conveyed from age to age, if you would deliver your own souls, I beseech, I entreat, I charge you to begin and continue the worship of God in your families from this day to the close of your lives. Consider family religion not merely as a duty imposed by authority, but as your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. Susanna Spurgeon also gave the world a glimpse into the life of their family. Wouldn't you love to have been a little fly in the wall of the Spurgeon family at some points in their lives, right? Well, this we get from, from Susanna, who after her husband died, said this. She wrote, after the meal was over, an adjournment was made to the study of, for family worship. You can just hear people pushing back from the table, and something else is changing, right? And this is Charles Spurgeon. He says that we would, uh, we would adjourn, and uh, adjournment was made for the study of family worship. And it was at these seasons that my beloved's prayer, prayers were remarkable for their tender child-likeness, their spiritual pathos, and their intense devotion. He seemed to come as near to God as a little child to a loving father, and we were often moved to tears as he talked thus face to face with his Lord. Charles Spurgeon, that lion of the faith, 
the guy who stood against the great controversy, right? The great downgrade controversy, the man who stood arms akimbo against the world, right? Here he is, described by his wife as engaging in prayers with tender childlikeness, spiritual pathos, and intense devotion. Giving his children a glimpse into what her, his wife would say as, as if he would talk thus face to faith, face with his Lord. What a delightful thing for his children to have witnessed. No wonder some of his, two of his kids went on to become pastors. I mean, how could you not with that kind of a, a father? There are so many more examples we could give to you uh, in church history, but let me end with a modern and sort of under, understated exhortation from John Piper in regards to family worship. He says this, you have to decide how important you think these family moments are. It is possible for little ones and teenagers and parents, you may have to work at it, but it can be done. You just have to decide how important you think these family moments are, he says. The weight of scripture and the experience of church history is that families worshiped together. Uh, and we have seen since Abraham uh, it, uh, make it a priority to convey to the next generation the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That has been the testimony of scripture. It's been the testimony of church history. It now falls at your threshold of your home. At times in history, no less than in our day, the Christian church has often uh, slouched away from this. We've gotten lazy with it over the years. And at different times in our history, it's not just in 2023 America, but throughout uh, church history, we've gotten really lazy. This is why the Puritans were so formulaic with a lot of their practices on things, because they'd gotten lazy with it and it had cultural and church problems because of it all. The busyness of life today robs us of the time it takes to worship as a family. And we got, we got many blessings uh, of modernity that will get in our way. Blessings and curses maybe at the same breath, right? We have education. We've got sports. We've got fine arts. We've got entertainment. All these things steal away moments from the 24 hours we have in a day to worship together as a family. And we're tempted to passively rely upon the church to to uh, teach our children the things of God and sort of pass that duty off to somebody else. That's a simple and easy temptation that's easy to fall into. The modern church era is especially detrimental on this point. Thankfully, this is not reflective of our church body, but we still have to war against it. But uh, churches today often separate the body of Christ even by age group. Now, there's times where that's appropriate, but separating families into their aggregate parts the moment they walk through the door and keeping them there throughout the entire experience probably is not the best use of, of church life. At least that's where I'm persuaded on the point of ecclesiology. A consequence of doing this in our modern church life is that families assume it to be impossible for generations to even worship together. You know, they, they've been taught from whatever childhood or whatever point they've joined the church in our modern era, that once you engage in worship, you do so separately, disaggregated as a family. Well, how might a six-year-old and a teenager and a 40-year-old and more, how could they actually worship together around a kitchen table if they can even manage to organize their schedules to get around that same kitchen table when every church experience they have ever had separates them by age group? Guys, there's a blessing that we have in this church that we don't do that that we want noises, uh, little gurgling noises, uh, and, and tears in the back of the room. I've told you before, I've got two of my favorite sounds in the church life ever, are pages flipping of the Bible when the pastor's calling out the passage, and little voices crying and learning how to sit through a service. Those are two tremendous things. Don't rob one another of that blessing. Bring us all together. All right.
Let me then give you six motivations, having gone through this little survey, let me give you six motivations for engaging in family worship. I mentioned a moment ago a, a message delivered by Matthew Henry on this very point. It's, it's a meditation on Joshua's declaration, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Henry's message, which you can find by Googling, is, uh, is entitled, A Church in the House. I cannot recommend this to you highly enough. This is an outstanding message that is really worth the 25 minutes it's going to take you to read it, right? A church in the house is Henry's message. Here then are the six motivations that Henry, Matthew Henry gives us for family worship. Six reasons why Henry says you ought to prioritize worship as a family. Number one, number one, first, if your families be little churches, I'm, I'm quoting, if your families be little churches, God will come to you and dwell with you in them. If your families be little churches, God will come to you and dwell with you in them. This is a motivation for engaging in family worship. And just think about this. God delights with his presence those who would gather in his name together. Would we not want God's dwelling place to be with our family and in our home? Ought we not to wish to compete with one another for God's presence to be with our family? I was this week with a number of politicians, and I happened to see a certain politician jockey for position to be in proximity with a very popular politician, a very, very popular politician, right? And that person knew that if they could just capture proof by means of a picture that they were in proximity to that politician, they would extend, that politician's popularity would extend to themselves myriad political benefits. And so they elbowed people out of the way. Uh, they, they jockeyed for position to be near that popular politician just for a second to be captured in the same photo frame as him. Well, how much more so the actual presence of the God of the universe in our homes? Why would we not want to jockey for position to make sure that the God of the universe came to my home? Now, thankfully, we don't have to really compete with that. I, I'm very, very competitive, so I sort of want to be you know, in the front of the line before Breck and Bailey, right? I, like, I want to get more of his presence in my life, but there's so much of his presence, it will go everywhere. He is omnipresent. He can be in all of our homes at the same time. I'm still going to work harder to become better and get more of that presence because I want more of that presence in my home. And I hope that Breck is competing just as much with me to get more of God's presence in his home because if we compete more on that point, we get more of God. He dwells more with us. Here's what Henry says. This presence and the blessing of God will make your relations comfortable, your affairs successful, your enjoyments sweet, and behold, by it all things are made clean to you. This will make your family comforts double comforts, and your family crosses but half crosses. It will turn a tent into a temple, a cottage into a palace, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth are the houses in which God dwells. Second motivation, Henry says. He says this, if you make your houses little churches, God will make them little sanctuaries. Nay, he will himself be to you as a little sanctuary. God will turn your house into a little sanctuary. Sanctuaries are places of refuge that those who are pursued may flee to for safety. Uh, they are guarded by the righteous from the evil that pursues them. Well, well Henry seizes upon this imagery uh, to remind us that the greatest protections that we might provide to our household is the protection of this little sanctuary. A, a redoubt that might be in the, uh, the, the territory of the enemies of this world. Henry says this, uh, Would you insure your houses by the best policy of insurance? 
turn them into churches. And then they shall be taken under the special protection of him who keeps Israel, and neither slumbers nor sleeps, and if any damage may come to them, it shall be made up in grace and glory. The way of duty is without doubt the way of safety. Nothing can hurt, nothing needs frighten those whom God protects. We provide for the spiritual safety of our family as we engage in worship as a family. Third, Henry gives us the contrapositive, the, the, the opposite, sort of the, the logical consequence of the preceding motivation. He says this, If you have not a church in your house, it is to be feared that Satan will have a seat there. If religion do not rule in your families, sin and wickedness will rule there. That's a dire warning. If God's presence is a guard against the presence of the enemy, so his absence leaves us and our families vulnerable. Here's how Henry puts it. He says, Now the way to keep sin out of the house is to keep up religion in the house, which will be the most effectual antidote against Satan's poison. But if religious worship have its place in the house, it may be hoped that vice will not have a place there. Would you guard your family against the temptations of this world, against its influences? Then commit, to fam- commit your family to the worship of the living God together. Demonstrate its importance. Prioritize it above other benefits and obligations of this life. Help keep sin out of the house, as Henry says, by keeping religion inside of it. Fourth, Henry says, a church in the house will make it very comfortable to yourselves. The psalmist says that he desires the one thing above all the rest, that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, Christian, we have that opportunity if we would but seize it. Uh, As we worship together, we dwell together in unity in the house of the Lord. And as we so dwell, we find, and we should find, great delight living so together. Says Henry, uh, family religion will help to make our family relations comfortable to us by promoting love, preventing quarrels, and extinguishing heats that may at any time happen. A family living in the fear of God and joining daily in religious worship truly enjoys itself. We find great delight as we worship together. Fifth, the fifth motivation for family worship, says Henry, is a church in the house will be a good legacy. Nay, it will be a good inheritance to be left to your children after you. He says this, you will hereby leave your children the benefit of many prayers put up to heaven for them, which will be kept, as it were, upon the file there to be answered to their comfort when you are silent in the dust. You will likewise hereby leave your children a good example, which you may hope they will follow when they come into houses of their own. As we are faithful to instruct our children, teaching them diligently all that God commands to be on their heart, we leave a legacy. Indeed, whatever we emphasize and whatever we teach to our children will be to us a legacy to them. The question is, what is it that we're teaching them? What type of legacy are we leaving for our children? Is the legacy that we are to leave our children, that sports and fine arts and worldly education, those are the things to be valued above the things of God? Those are all fine things. But is that the legacy that we teach and push? Is that what we put our time and emphasis upon the most? God calls parents to leave a legacy that points beyond them so that, as Henry put it, when you are silent in the dust, what a great line, when you are silent in the dust, the legacy of Christ lives in the next generation's house. Finally, Henry's last motivation for family worship is this. He says, a church in the house will contribute very much to the prosperity of the church of God and in the nation. 
Family worship yields very practical results. Families focused upon the living God, families trained to do good that pleases God, results in greater love for neighbor and also for growth in the church. Uh, According to Matthew Henry, uh, we cannot better serve our country than by keeping up religion in our families, and religious families are blessings to the neighborhood they live in. We ought to be. We're supposed to be salt and light, and we're better to have that salt made more salty and light made more lighty than in the home where we are treating them. We are training our children thus to understand. And then to not have it terminate upon us, rather it's supposed to flow from us and motivate uh, us to care for others, most especially for the good of their souls, and especially to those immediately within our context. Our family, yes, and then our neighborhood. And more broadly, our country and our world. Thus does righteousness exalt a nation, if for no other reason than that the children of, of godly families have learned the best of character at the foot of their parents in family worship. But family worship likewise prospers the church, not just the nation or the local neighborhood. Well, how does it prosper the church? Well, here's Henry's lengthy answer. He says this, Let families be well catechized, and then the public preaching of the word will be more profitable and the more successful. If every family were a praying family, public prayers would be the better joined in, more intelligently and more affectionately. For the more we are used to prayer, the more expert we shall be in that holy and divine art of entering into the holiest in that duty. And and public reproofs and admonitions would be as a nail in a sure place if masters of families would second them with their family discipline and so clench those nails. That's the work of family worship. We become better churchmen by learning how to be churchmen at the foot of our families. Mom and dad, your family worship equips the effectiveness of this church, not the other way around. You prepare your family to worship and serve this body by worshiping first as a family. You prepare the fertile soil of your children's hearts in family worship that the good seed of the gospel proclaimed from the pulpit on the other side of this wall might bear good fruit. Family worship is the daily training of the Christian faith that together we might run with confidence the race that is set before us. So, with all those motivations in place, all those examples throughout church history and the scriptures themselves, what does family worship actually look like? How do we do it? Well, let's keep it as simple as we possibly can. There's many great ways to engage in family worship. There are three, I think, critical elements, and really it's two, but really it's two and a half, three, all right? So there's just three things to remember. We're Trinitarians, let's just stick with three, right? Three things. Reading, praying, singing. You can remember that, right? Reading, praying, singing. Now, the good news is, you know how to do this already. You know how to read, most of you. You know how to pray, and You know how to sing. Whether or not it's good is another question. But we know all three of those things. You know how to read, you know how to sing, you know how to pray. So number one, read. Read the scriptures to your children. This isn't rocket surgery, guys. This is pretty simple stuff, right? We've tried a variety of resources in our family, uh, many of which are really good, but the greatest and the most useful, the most um, convenient resource, frankly, is the Bible. It's also the most obvious, right? It's, It's right there. This is the thing we order our lives around. Just pick up the Bible, read. Read to your your family. This doesn't have to be that difficult. You don't need to have a library of devotional books or a PhD in theology somehow to lead family worship. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 reminds us that all scriptures breathed out by God. And what's it profitable for? For teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, pick up the book. Pick up the Bible. And regardless of your child's age, the Bible can be understood. And most of it can actually be read by most of your children as well. But read it together. And there's something wonderful that comes from mom and dad, especially from dad reading the scripture to your children. There may be words that need to be defined, the concepts that have to be kind of carefully explained, but you have that ability. Uh, and you, you, have the, 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 you have the ability right now to explain those things. Everything from uh, the, the fun Sunday school stories that you heard before to having to explain who the whore of Babylon is in Revelation, right? All of that exists. It's all in the scriptures, and we need not shy away from it all. You have the freedom. You have the ability to, to be able to do that. Read the Psalms and the Proverbs. Those are good for any age group that you have. Uh, teach the stories of the Old Testament that have been used by generations to showcase the faithfulness of God and the feebleness of his people. You can, if you want, get uh, the flannel graphs out. You can get uh, you know blank pieces of paper and see how, how they can rival my illustration of the coat of many colors. Uh, you can pull out puppets if you really want to. I don't care. But in our experience, in the 15 years we've been hard at work at this, the plain reading of the scriptures is the best thing to be done. Right? Just pick up the Bible, read it. Catechisms are useful at this age as well. Uh, and they're especially useful to young children. Uh, they, they help understand these things. The, the, the core experience of family worship is truly best served, though, by just picking up the Bible and reading it out loud to your children. If you don't know where to begin, just grab a Bible, flip it open, start with Psalms. Those are beautiful and helpfully understood by anybody. Read them, pray them, teach them. Read the Bible, number one. Number two, then spend time praying. Uh, what does this look like? Well, I mean, it looks like every other prayer that you might have, right? But here, you're in the family context, so pray for your children. Let them hear you praying for your children, for them. Let them hear you interceding for them, just as Job's children heard him praying for them. Uh, pray for their salvation. Yes, pray for their salvation right in front of them. Pray that God would save their souls. Pray for the, the needs and the anxieties and the delights that are present even amongst our children's lives. You know what they are. You're their parents. Speak them. Show to them that we are casting together your cares, their cares, not upon just mom and dad, but upon the God who loves them. Show them that. Pray them. Pray for the family as a whole. Uh, confess sins of a family together. Uh, you know what they are. You've got them. You've seen them. You've lived them. Pray them. Show them what confession means. Praise God for answered prayers in your family. Uh, make sure your kids see that God does answer prayers. Show them in your praise how his active hand uh, of providence has governed their lives that day. Pray for and with your family. Pray together as a family for your church. Uh, if you want a starting point on that, just pick up the list. I think we can have it out there in, in the front of the information booth, whatever. Grab your care group and just pray down through the list of every one of those people. Pick one a day. Uh, pick six a day. I don't care, but pick one and pray for that person. Now, you might find as you do that that you don't know enough about that person to pray for. Well, this is wonderful uh, because you can encourage your children to, with you, Approach those people and find out about their lives in the corporate body and figure out how you can pray for them as well. Do you know how delightful it would be for Joan Eads or some of our other saints in this congregation to have your little one come up to them and say, Miss Joan, how can I pray for you this week? You might have to wait a few minutes while she stops kind of blubbering 
at the sweetness of that moment, but she's going to, do you think she's going to say, no kid, I don't want you to pray for me? Of course not. She's going to delight to tell them how you can pray for them. All right, let me move through this quickly. The last thing, consider singing together. And I'll tell you right now, this is the first thing to get cut in our family worship, partly because you don't want to have this thing go on for a long time, right? Just, just keep it as short and simple as you can. We understand the pressures of time, especially we do ours at night, so we've got uh, bedtime right on the back end of this. We don't want it to go forever. But it, it's also harder to do, uh, and frankly, it takes time. So uh, there's a lot of benefit, though, to singing. Our songs teach a lot of our theology as a church. Uh, so you might, especially at different times of the year, consider throwing songs in there. Christmas time is a great time for this. We've got a bunch of old carols that have tremendous theology in them. You should sing them together. They're already known to us anyway. They're kind of stuck in our brains. But consider singing them. Easter hymns provide a similar thing. Uh, perhaps there's a song here that has gotten stuck in your head. I want to tell you that I think that this is more than just an earworm. I think God puts those songs and keeps them stuck in our heads for a reason. There may be something that God is teaching us in our heads and in our hearts right now. Or it could be that that is not supposed to terminate on us either, but perhaps it's been stuck in our heads so that we can sing together with that, with that, with our children so that they can hear those words again. Have that stuck in your head. Sing those things together. It doesn't matter if you sing well or not. It does, in fact, in some ways it's better that you don't sing well, right? Because it's going to create a, a kind of a warm memory. And it's going to teach your kids that whether or not you sing beautifully or not, you delight in singing the songs of the faith, and you delight doing so with them. So sing together. Sorry, right, right? Read, pray, sing. And then the last thing I'm going to encourage you on this is to be extremely gracious to yourself. You're going to miss times of family worship, right? I, there is not a single human alive that has done this perfectly. Matthew Henry himself missed a Sunday or missed a day in this, all right? So this has happened, all right? The, the point is, if you miss a night, get back to it as soon as you can. Get back on track. If the thing you're using is sort of bogging down, find something else to do. Just just spice it up again. There's a way to get back to this and bring some freshness to it all. You'll figure it out. We're not legalists on this. We don't achieve our righteousness through family worship. Christ alone achieves that for us. Instead, our worship as a family is done out of obedience to Christ and a desire to be like him. I'm going to give you the resources next week because I can feel the heat of Mark, uh, Richie, in the back of my head. But I've got a couple of resources I want to give to you. I'll put those at the front end of our message last week, or next week. Let me just end with Matthew Henry one more time. He says this, Churches are sacred societies incorporated for the honor and service of God in Christ, devoted to God, and employed for him, and so should our families be. So I encourage you to avoid the mistakes of passive religion that I've made in my life. Commit your family instead to worshiping together. Let's start that by worshiping together out there. All right? Go and be blessed.